Hello and welcome to episode 73 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. I'm your host Matthew Neugebauer coming to you on this February 11th, 2021. It's also the Thursday after the fifth Sunday of Epiphany if you're counting Ash Wednesday, Mardi Gras, all that Lent is just around the corner. Um, today I'm going to be going into that council scene a little more. This is my entry into Star Wars Podcast Day. That was uh, happened this past Sunday, but graciously allowing other shows that have other uh, other schedules and just Sunday to to chip in and to be a part of this. And uh, I'm glad to uh, Daniel for organizing all of this um today yeah we are going to into that council scene i had thought of doing my first installment of my into the dark review discussion i think most likely i'll do a one episode review of that probably next week Uh, i'll give a bit of my thoughts on it this week but i found i i had more things to say and more things to think about uh about that one council scene in light of the Jedi that interlude between parts two and three. So, um, get into that a little later. First of all, the pull list, uh, still with the high Republic sticking with that. Talking about Daniel Jose Older's, uh, high Republic adventures. And I, I don't normally read the adventures line. I'm not the right demographic for it. Quite frankly, it's for, younger readers but this was already my favorite adventures book i think maybe the uh the framing device that they usually use i found maybe a little contrived for me i'm sure it helps might help kids focus on the two stories at once um which are there are good reasons why they have a, a present present set story and a past set story i did read tales from raiders castle i read battle tales by Mike Morrissey, Tales from Raiders Castle, by also High Republic author Kevin Scott. But this one, the, the the High Republic Adventures, full of exciting action. You know, any comic that grips me and I just keep going and going. You know, is well written and well drawn. And this one is setting up this interesting story of a young, newly minted. Uh, I believe she, you know, she's still there's still Padawans at this point. Um, going around the galaxy under Yoda's tutelage, but on this case, the the Yoda's up in space dealing with something, so and the kids are on the planet encountering uh, a little town that's under attack by the Nile, and they find a Force-sensitive kid who's been told to always shut off the Force, that it's dangerous. And so we can see it, it, what's brewing here is a, a great story, for kids about becoming and embracing how you can contribute to the wider world and the wider galaxy, which as you know, I look at my Luke Skywalker black series here. uh, That's, yeah, that's been the story of star Wars since 1977. And so uh, good to see high Republic adventures. Number one, following that grand tradition. So I I do want to talk a bit about into the dark by Claudia gray. And I'm, about halfway through that now and it is a you know it is a gripping read it's an interesting read but the uh the overall thrust what claudia gray is trying to say in it hasn't fully been explored yet hasn't fully been revealed yet they've just 
if you've read the book, they've just left the station where I'm at and uh, gotten those idols off of off of the station onto the ship. I am detecting some interesting Star Trek references in there, by the way. Uh, I mean, the, the the station itself seems a little bit designed like DS9. Um, I think it was Comac Vitus talking about, well, it's, a, it's logical to assume. It might have been Orla, I'm trying to remember. One of the Jedi Knights saying, it is logical to assume and talking like a Vulcan and uh, these different references there. And there's the, the deeper question of the Jedi exploring beyond the galaxy. And it, it is another, uh, maybe one of the things that Claudia Gray is looking at is what do people who haven't heard of the Jedi think about the Jedi and the Republic and the Force? And they clearly have heard of the Force and they call it as such. But there's some there's some learning to do on both sides. And like a good YA novel, it, it's exploring how characters feel about these circumstances in, in a way that may be more intensely than a grown uh, an adult novel, I should say. They are grown up. And this is like, I mean, they're, they're late teenagers, but at least uh, Reith Silas is. He's 17. And journeying along him, what is interesting is, of course, both Claude Gray's YA, YA novels have had romantic interests. You know, I mean, Lost Stars is a romance, and it's maybe one of the best romances I've seen come out of Hollywood or out of any sort of major blockbuster property. You know, if you've listened to this show before, you know, I'm very skeptical and uh, of, of romances generally. And, of course, Lost Stars, <laughs> Claude Gray nails it perfectly. And then Leia, Princess of Alderaan, she has uh, something going on alongside her. Leia has something going on alongside her parliamentary, or not parliamentary, yeah, her, her, her work in, in the, the Senate, the junior parliamentary program with her father. But you know, here they're Jedi, and they, uh, they can't. I mean, Reith starts to think about Oh, am I leading her on? These sorts of questions, but he's committed to to a very clear form of celibacy that his master Jora Mali, as as we'll get into later, uh, she very strongly instills into him uh, celibacy, purity, not just of body but of heart, and those commitments, the commitment to their attachment to the order as a whole, the mission of the order as a whole. So I'm enjoying it. Uh, I'm glad they're off the station. I, I was, I did think that that had run its course. And so good timing that Claudia has now taken us off the station as far as I know. Uh, interesting to see what happened with Des, what's going on there. I'm very curious. And I know those of you who have read that, this novel already, um, enjoy my journey of discovery there i will have it finished hopefully by hopefully for next week's recording okay so that council scene and just as a heads up what i am thinking i'm going to do and i don't normally do this but it's only a page and a half or just over a page and and i don't normally do this but i think i'm going to read it out 
uh, at least read parts of it out and just comment on what uh you know what i think of so i'll i'll, I'll read a section read a blurb stop if you want to have it out it's Light of the Jedi around 298. I'll start around, well, 300 is really where where it is. And um, I'll go through it and, and stop just because every little speech there, every little moment has something I can think of and pick up on. Some of this will be a rehash of last week's episode. Uh, it's good that that last week did tend to focus more on Chancellor So and her emission and her ambitions but uh, and I touched on the council meeting a little bit some of this will be a rehash of that com- of that discussion but going more in depth onto literally one page of this book that I think is as momentous as any uh, lesson on Octo as any co- discussion on a log on Dagobah <laughs> um you know, any you know, the the Senate debates in uh, you know Padme going in front of the Senate and while her planet's being blockaded and saying I will not defer. I I think the consequences of this scene and of Jorah's own decision is going to reverberate and as we know ends up reverberating uh, two hundred years some odd years later. Yeah, so I got into that last week, so I don't need to dwell on that. But I think it is also going to reverberate throughout the High Republic. This commitment to join the effort for to commit the ataraxia, which she, she names as, or the narrator names as, a floating temple. More so than Starlight Beacon. Starlight is considered a temple outpost in the same sense. Um... Not maybe not in the same sense, say Alfrona, not in a, a literal temple outpost, but a beacon, a a more prominent sign of, of the Jedi's presence, and so of the presence, at least so they believe, of the light side of the Force. And so, she's on the Ataraxia, chiming in just like, uh, well, just like Yoda, would ch- chimed in from Kashyyyk into the Council on Coruscant uh, in Episode Three just like Vader chimes in to Coruscant to talk to Grandpa Sheev in uh, Empire Strikes Back. Similar thing, where, where she has the Ataraxia stop near Felucia to get a clearer signal. So, um, before I go in, I do want to do a bit more of a setup there. So, last week I started to talk about the two payoffs from the Elfrona storyline in Light of the Jedi overall. I mentioned, of course, the main narrative one, the main story one is that Loden is captured and he's captured by Mark and Rowe in, uh, in his ship in this torture dungeon. <laughs> um, and that I am certain will, of course, pay off. We'll see what the implications of that are. Maybe in Kevin Scott's book uh, that comes out in June. We'll see. The, the, that's that's a cliffhanger of the of this story. Another payoff, though, is what happens with Bell and how he is able to save. Uh, oh, what's her name? I have the book right here. B. <laughs> there it is. He's able to save B by uh, 
by reconciling what the Jedi are and what the Jedi are all about. And of course the, what comes up in the debate in the interlude following this chapter. Um, he's able to save B because before he was able, he was just trying to save himself. And that's, that's understandable. That's justifiable. You know, if, if your master throws you off a cliff and you tense up and you're so worried and afraid, then yeah, you're going to, you're going to you know, try not to die. <laughs> but here he has a mission to take action and the force responds, the force kicks in and he's able to slow their descent as he grabs this kid because as the quote on page 296, being a Jedi was not about saving oneself. It was about saving others. And that to me is the real payoff in the, in a similar way, actually, I think to uh, the Kento bite stuff in the last Jedi that, you know, a similar theme really is the galaxy, you know, is full, you know, high finance, arms dealers, arms trade, complexity, this is going to come up in a minute, uh, self-interest, motivating war, and primarily the First Order, but also a little bit the resistance and the establishment there, the New, the New Republic. The payoff in both with Bell and with Rose is this is how we win, not by killing what we hate, not by simply looking out for, for number one, saving ourselves, but for finding people, by finding people to love and to save them and to be saved by them, right? Finn trying to be the hero and go out in a blaze of glory, he has to come and be saved by Rose from himself. So uh, a similar payoff there and... Uh, yeah, that I think will also reverberate. So Jorah Mali then, and this brings us to her and the interlude. She is set to leave the council, step down from the council and take over uh, as the Jedi Marshal on Starlight Beacon. Spoiler alert, jumping to the end of the story here, she, of course, dies at the Battle of Kerr. So it's almost to say all this is, is actually a bit of a moot point, uh, a philosophical wormhole, I think she says. Uh, not so much. I mean, she commits the ataraxia and she commits the Jedi Order to this fight. She is a Togruta with white lightsabers, <laughs> which should in some way spark spark a bell, ring a bell to memory with another Togruta who ends up getting white lightsabers. But that's really where the similarity with Ahsoka ends. And um, I'm going to start jumping all the way to... Uh, yeah. Let's see. So this is the bottom of page 299. Let's dive right in here. Talking about how Denial has to be dealt with. And the only question was the role of the Jedi in that action. So this is what the council is going to be deba debating today. 
when this scene takes place. Jorah listened as the various council members presented their arguments. Great emphasis was placed on interpreting the will of the Force, listening for the Force, taking direction from the Force, and so on. Jorah found that a little tiresome. A philosophical vortex, that's the phrase. Um, and, you know, that the, the fact that they're spending so much time I mean, that, I can relate to that. Right? I can relate to, in church conversations, we always have to ask, you know, is this God's will? How do we know it's God's will? How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Does God want those angels to dance on the head, the head of a pin? Um, those, you know, questions that could lead us into a vortex or a rabbit trail. But do come up when we, you know, we have a very important decision to make about who we are as church and uh, how what our engagement with the rest of the world looks like. For her, it was very simple, for Jorah. The Jedi were deeply connected to the light side of the Force. Whatever choice any Jedi made was, therefore, the will of the Force. Study and focus allowed the Jedi to become better instruments of that will, certainly, in much the way that a well-maintained lightsaber functioned better than one that had fallen into disrepair. But getting caught up in an endless debate about what the Force might want was paralyzing, a waste of time. Now a few things to, to think about there is our, um, you know, I, last week I, I did level pretty heavy, heavy criticism and I think we're meant to about Jorah's attitude that oh she presumes just like Luke says you know the, the Jedi die the light dies it's vanity the force does not belong to the Jedi what's the most interesting part of this whole debate though is that the Jedi perspective here is quite understandable and as I go into it, there, there are some in, important questions to ask. I think what Jorah is concerned with is that this question, is it the Force's will? How do we know? We can actually use data whichever way we want. And, uh, you know, the example that comes to mind, I was just reading, um, and this is maybe not the best example, but I was just reading an article on policing here in Canada and how pe police have data on who is committing what crimes, but we can say, okay, what are police supposed to do? What is the church's stance in culture generally? And we can say, well, here's the data. Data can be made to say whatever you want, or more importantly, can be ignored. And the fact that the impression is that communities of color commit more crimes that's just the media and tv and hollywood blowing things way out of proportion because it sells and because it makes uh, us suburban white folks feel good about ourselves right uh, that's clearly not what the data says the data says uh, criminal activity is spread out there are factors such as poverty and uh, education that can mitigate whether or not someone is, is 
led to criminal activity, home circumstances, all these things. And so, yeah, it can be paralyzing to be caught up in, in a literally an ivory tower debating what to do in this case, while the Nile are wreaking havoc and there's a, a blockade that I got went went into last week for Jorah. She has studied and spent her whole life. What Catholic moral thinking calls forming her conscience. So, this is this is actually a really essential point, especially when it comes to lay people. And just say I'm not Roman Catholic myself, but I, I do appreciate where they're coming in, in a lot of this. Uh, so lay people are free to do privately what they want. You know, there's not, at least in 2021, there isn't going to be the kind of policing that may have happened a hundred years ago. 50, 60 years ago. Um, and, and that's just the way that's borne out over, over the last few decades. I'm thinking especially in, in issues like use of contraception, for example, or especially in how they, they vote and what values go into voting. I know that came up in the U.S. election. Even bishops got this wrong. <laughs> he said, oh, if you vote Joe Biden, you're going to go to hell. And that's not at all what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about voting and conscience. What they do teach is we never make decisions in isolation from others. We never make decisions in isolation from the traditions that are meant to guide us, from the community that we have committed to, that is, the church. And so Jorah speaking about how study and focus allows a Jedi to tap into and have maybe a better sense of what the light side of the force would say that I can see that that resonates. Now I do happen to think the Roman Catholic church is wrong about, I did. I happen to disagree. See, that's the thing. I'm not even going to be as arrogant to say, I think they're wrong. I happen to disagree. And my conscience has been moved in ways different than what their official teaching would say. But that's the point is that, my conscience has been moved and hopefully like to think it's a reason studied approach. I wouldn't presume that I get that perfect, but the idea is again, in common, we, we read scripture, we pray, we uh, discuss things in conversation um, and we meet, you know, as, as an Anglican church, you know, we meet in, something like a synod, like a council to debate and discuss and discern and in some cases actually vote on <laughs> what we think God is calling us to do. And, and issues of sexuality have come up, right? The last two general synods, 2016, 2019, the issue of, of welcoming all people into the sacrament of marriage has come up and we took a, a bit of a circuitous route, but the Anglican Church of Canada got there because a majority of people had studied and prayed and related and loved people who and welcomed people and were, most importantly, people who are themselves LGBTQ, discerning what God is calling them to do with 
their vocation to marriage. So that resonates, and uh, it isn't necessarily arrogant. It depends on how you take it. I think Luke Skywalker, looking back, and with the history of uh, the Clone Wars looking back, yeah, maybe Jorah got it wrong because the sources maybe training her were guiding her in a certain direction. This is a military action, Master Adampo said, stroking the long white whiskers dangling from her chin, her voice strong and direct. The Jedi are not a military force. I believe it is that simple. But we have been a military force in the past, said Aporegesis. In fact, our predecessors waged and won the great Sith War. There is endless precedent in the Chronicles for this sort of thing. True, but we are not at war now. We are the farthest thing from it, said Ranakant. Not the farthest, replied Yaryapuk. I like how he's still alive. He's still around. Not the farthest, replied Yari Alpuf. There have been times in her history when the order was reduced to about a handful of members. So this is interesting, again, for a few things, a few reasons. One of the things I got went into last week is one of the most important sources of discernment is our past. What have we done before when we faced maybe a similar situation or a situation that at least reminds us of uh, of what we're facing now. I'm currently reading alongside all the, this High Republic stuff. Uh, I'm currently reading Augustine's City of God. And it's great timing because that too was written as a narrative of great disaster. It was written in response to the fall of the Roman Empire. And we can look back on that now and say... Uh, just like in Augustine's day, Christians are not the majority religion. They're not necessarily the ones with political power, but there is this analogous relationship in that we're kind of there. We, we're, we're in to some extent, uh, <laughs> and we have to demonstrate how the gospel is profound and meaningful and life-giving. Sorry, that's jargon and helpful and supporting, encouraging people. And one of the things Augustine does is take the prophetic stance. And in his first, in the first three, four books I'm reading, he really goes after the Roman pantheon and says, uh, the, you know, why are we attributing these crimes to gods? Why are we worshiping them? especially Jupiter. Why not worship the book I'm into now? Why aren't we worshiping Felicity and saying, oh, but Felicity, blessedness comes from the true God. Having that conversation speaks to me similarly to the type of things I'm thinking about. And we, we think about what sort of uh, fixations have led to this pandemic. Why have we valorized some of someone like Jeff Bezos who can hoard wealth for me and mine and not create infrastructure for or not mobilize government and civil society and public institutions to create the kind of infrastructure that would make us more resilient to something like this. What is it about our culture that's very uh, 
very self-centered and very, you know, not, not our culture writ large, but the element that would say, no, don't tell me to wear a mask. I'm going to just do what I want. That what is about us that rebels against that? We can look back and say those values. Um, it is interesting, you know, or, or say, sorry, I should tell me, you know, those values and the values then of in response, uh, the gospel call to care for our fellow human being and, and say, you know, what I'm getting at before, we're all in this together. One little note I found interesting that, you know, so there, Yariel Poof saying there are times when the order was reduced to a handful of members and that that is the furthest thing from war. And I know Charles Soule probably wants us to think, okay, well, the next time the Jedi are reduced to a handful of members, they actually start fighting a war. <laughs> they join the Rebel Alliance, right? You have Luke, you have Kanan and Ezra, you have Ahsoka. Saying, okay, the light has called us to join up with this much larger alliance to restore the Republic. That's where my mind went. You have Ray even later saying, joining the Resistance. And um, so it, it is a bit of an odd argument. Maybe Yariel Poof is saying that, well, but, well, we know what he's saying, saying back then they didn't, they weren't waging a war. They weren't part of a war. They were just trying to be this creative minority within a much larger galaxy and a very, um, you know, bruised reed and faintly burning wick that they were able to recover. Then, of course, there is the Great Sith War, the story we haven't heard yet, that Apo Renches is to another Jedi who will survive till the Clone Wars. Uh, the Great Sith War, we story we haven't uh, heard yet. But, you know, I'm, and so we don't quite know what lessons to gain, be gained from that. But the, using it as, as precedent, as a call, a rallying cry, and um, again, and this is where I'll go on the attack here and say, yeah, and I'm sure he probably used that again the beginning of the Clone Wars. He might have. Um, which would be odd because this is when the story of the Jedi being chastened. So I don't quite know. I don't know what necessarily his point is except in the moment to say, yeah, we can join this war. Why not? We've, we've done this before. Okay, then continuing on. Why are we talking about history? said Efru Shin, the newest member of the council. Amon Kalamari, selected by Yoda to hold his seat while the great master was on his sabbatical from council business. We should be concerned with now, not old empires or victories or defeats. What is our role in this republic at the precise moment? She lifted a hand. I believe that the Jedi should, at all times, present to the many peoples of the galaxy a way of life centered on peace. We must show them the way. The Republic is uniquely receptive to such an idea at the moment. Yes, but we are guardians of two ideals, are we not? said Yariel Poof. Sometimes, unfortunately, they come into conflict. We must always strive for, for peace, but also for justice. 
Peace without justice is flawed, hollowed at its core. It is the peace provided by tyranny. So there, again, are a few things to note here. First of all, the question, why are we talking about history? There is an important impulse, and, and The Last Jedi especially fights with this, works with this, is driven by this tension between tradition and innovation. And how much can we learn from history? Uh, this question, you know, this loaded question by Efrushin, it is the more peaceable version of let the past die, kill it if you have to. In a way, it's uh, at least what what's good about that is let's not necessarily be constrained by the past. Let's also attend to the present moment which is, of course, another source, important source of discernment. Efer Shin looks around and looks at Chancellor So, looks at Starlight Beacon and says, we are all the Republic. And he isn't saying that necessarily himself. He isn't buying in, I don't think, to, uh, to the propaganda aspect of it. But he's saying, okay, here's an opportunity if the light is calling us to peace and harmony to affirm the interconnectedness of all things that we can actually find maybe a diplomatic solution to the Nihil. We can resist drum beating, beating the drums of war and, uh, and push forward and change and write a new chapter in our history. Now that one, I think for most listeners and most readers is easy to get behind. And, and I'm, I feel that I resonate with it too. But then we also have uh, Yari Alpuf chiming in again. It's a question of peace and justice. Now, uh, delving into a bit into uh, into the dark, there's a very clear sense that Jedi at this time are uh, are very hesitant and very I'm trying to think of the word very considered when they have to actually ignite their lightsabers. It's, you know, it, it is again another link to the Last Jedi, where we're questioned on our sense of ignite the green heck yeah go kick some tar. The Jedi of the High Republic are not like that. You see, Reith, I mean, Reith is is a a book nerd, but and and I, and I love that about him. But you know, he he cuts a guy's arm off and he feels terrible about it. He's like, ah, I cut a guy's arm off. What do I, you know, I've, I've ended his life. I've not ended his life. I've changed his life, uh, in a significant way. I wish there were more of a diplomatic solution. The way the vectors and Charles soul brings us up and the narrator brings us up the vectors in order to use their weapons, you have to pull out your lightsaber and stick it in. And that is connected then to this discipline about whether or not Jedi pull out their lightsabers at all, whether or not it stays in their holster. And it's not just a clip, it's a holster. It's, it's held there tightly. It's meant to be a very deliberate act. And so there is a more profound commitment to being peaceable uh, you know, Mace Windu, we are keepers of the peace, not soldiers. Um, the, the fact that this is a debate at all, 
Whereas it isn't a debate whether or not you know, Avar is going to take the Ataraxia, or is it not the Ataraxia, the, the Third Horizon, to Hetzal to be the rescue effort. That's not a debate. Whether or not the Jedi take part in the Clone Wars. I mean, we don't see that debate in, in, the, in the first trilogy in Attack of the Clones. We just see, well, we got this clone army now. I guess we got to go fight this war. <laughs> Um, you know, they don't have the standing army, neither does the whole galaxy. They have the defense coalition. Even Admiral Cornara, though, seems to be someone who is very clear on restraint. He has that sense that the light side of the force is calling people to peace. That being said, here is a serious threat. The resistance, with the resistance, the uh, uh, the First Order is a serious threat. Of course, the Re- with the Rebel Alliance, the Empire is more than a serious threat. Uh, the Separatists, are they? That's the question, right? And that that's the difference, that's the contrast, is they're, uh, that at that point they're being manipulated by Darth Sidious so much that they can't even tell where the threat actually is until... It's too late, and Mace Windu has to go and go from Keepers of the Peace, not Soldiers, to, well, I got to go assassinate the Chancellor now. <laughs> um, and not, and he's too dangerous to be kept alive. And, and I don't quite know, frankly, what, we're met, what George Lucas was calling us to think about that moment. But in this moment, it, you know, peace without justice. And we think, okay, yeah, again, it, it's easier It's easy for us to resonate, and easy, not in a bad way. It's clear and direct for us to resonate with the Jedi bearing a message of peace to the galaxy. But this question of justice, it actually resonates right now, and it is very timely, because one way you can talk about justice is accountability. And uh, we're undergoing a second impeachment trial, not the impeachment, the trial for President Trump, who we all know incited this terrorist attack, the, the, what I'm calling the 2-6 terrorist attack. I'm not going to go into too much, but Gina Carano, that happened, that went down. Um, consequences. You can't have peace with people who have come in to disturb that peace left unchecked. And so here are the Nihil coming in left unchecked. The last thing I want to say about the Gina Carano thing, the silver lining, I'm sure lots of other places are going to talk about that. More power to them. Uh, the silver lining is, I think, uh, Appa Toronto Carson Teva can have the lead in, uh, in the Rangers of the New Republic series. Another example of someone who wants to work for peace, wants to have the banner of the Rebel Alliance, the New Republic, wants to unite the galaxy in, in this democratic forum that is the Senate. And, you know, this, should I say, federation-like uh, political entity of collaboration and cooperation. But uh, he he senses the threat that's emerging, and we don't know if it's the First Order. But he's got to go back to Leia, I think, and 
convince her that this is this is a real threat to be dealt with. Um, the question again, and this is what I, I left last week off of with, is why are we, you know, what is the motivation behind engaging uh, with, you know, we're, and as Christians, we're not going to use violent force, but we can call for someone to have legal action taken against them. Again, going back to Augustine, who developed the whole system of just war, are you are we committed to uh, not just war but justice <laughs> and the point and, and the the basis for that being um, are we using it as an excuse to march to war or are we approaching it as saying people are going to march to war let's curb that in the name of peace in the name of human dignity so that our imaginations can be changed our vision of what human social and political relationships can look like the basis of course for all that is scripture saying an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and in jesus day that had become exaggerated and said oh i I lost an eye, you owe me an eye. Oh, I lost a tooth, you owe me a tooth. And and yet, you know, the very litigious society that we find ourselves in. Maybe this is a bit of a a call just to remember, yes, consequences, yes, cancellation and firing, yes, of course. For the sake of building people up for the sake of creating, ensuring a safe space for trans folks, for black folks, for indigenous folks, for women to express themselves without fear of being attacked and berated because of who they are. There does need to be justice in that peace. Of course, peace without justice, or, or sorry, justice without peace is what we get with the empire. It's what we get with the Death Star coming in, bringing security and pro not prosperity, but you know, uh, discipline and order. It is a form of justice. You can point to it and say, yeah, they treat all of us equally horribly, <laughs> but it's without peace. And so, very profound points in this council meeting that go on resonate reverberate whatever term you want uh, for the next couple centuries i do not believe there's been a single instance of the jedi getting involved in the military matters of galactic government that has generated anything but endless complexity Efru replied so we should strive only for simplicity the galaxy is not a simple place master shin said Grandmaster Laru. And on it went. Jorah listened, but did not speak, letting the other council members make their positions clear. Those positions settled with five in favor of agreeing to the Chancellor's request, and five against. The final choice was down to Jorah, which seemed appropriate to her, since it would be her ship, 
the autoraxia that would accompany Republic forces on the mission. I'll skip down. You know, I am not much for words. I prefer to act. In this case, I think the decision is simple enough. It's the same question I ask myself whenever I do anything at all. Does the action I'm about to take bring more light to the galaxy? In this case, I believe the answer is clear. The Nile have snuffed out countless people across the outer rim and caused endless strife and suffering. We should act to reduce their ability to do anything like this again. I will take the Ataraxia and accompany Admiral Coronara's fleet. And then what? asked Operentiousus. Do you have any sense of what you will do once the Nile will f- are found? Yes, Master Anchesis, Jorah said. Whatever the Force wills. So again, there is that sense of arrogance that the Force is just going to show up for her. But on the flip side, it could be considered a matter of, I don't know what the future is going to hold. It is a complicated galaxy. And uh, we can't control out there. We can't force everything into a simple system that could be justice without peace, right? That could be the tyranny of the empire is to force everything into a grid and a spreadsheet. And so all Jorah can do is rely on where she's come from and act in the moment. Again, she dies at the Battle of Kerr. We, there's no way of knowing, I mean, they are able to defeat, uh, defeat the Nile force that gathers there, but there's no way of knowing if that individual choice was itself, uh, the right response in the moment. What I hope is that Jedi going forward in this story of the High Republic take her lesson to say there is so much going on out there we can't figure it all out we are going to we all we can do is focus on the task in front of us and hope that what we are doing is countering the darkness and bringing more light how do we understand that light by looking to our past by upholding both justice and peace by supporting the people in front of us. We're not always going to get it right. We may end up dead in the process. <laughs> At least the Jedi don't have any plans on going anywhere. But there is a profundity, frankly, in her simplicity, in her, not simplicity, but her acceptance of the fact that she can only take the next step and trust that the Force will guide her. It's, a, it's complicated in itself, but also you know, it, it is what's possible. I think of the psalm, I've not concerned myself with matters too great for me. This is a Jedi Master talking. This is King David in his psalm. We'll see if the Jedi, how the Jedi learned their lesson, 
if they're forced to learn that lesson as the High Republic continues. So that has been episode 73 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. Uh, I know this has been a bit longer than I usually go because it has been more structured in this way. Hope you appreciated what you heard. I hope you go check out the other entries and, and participants of Star Wars Podcast Day, Star Wars Podcast Week. You can give me a follow on Twitter at NEUG485 and on Instagram at MNEUG1138. Thanks for listening. May the Force be with you always.